On May 24th, 1738, a young British clergyman was wandering the streets of London, England. And while he was wandering, he had nothing but fears and doubts weighing down his heart, mind, and soul. He had been raised in a faithful family. He had done all the right things, gone to the right school, knew all the right scriptures, knew all the right prayers, but it wasn't enough. Because no matter how hard he prayed, no matter how dedicated he was to spiritual disciplines like scripture reading and fasting, it always felt like something was missing from his life. In short, his faith wasn't very faithful. Maybe you know this feeling, that when on the surface everything is as it should be, but underneath it's all a mess. Those times when you've put in all the work, but the results just aren't there. You've committed yourself to being better. You've really tried this time, but at the end of the day, you're just the same as you've always been. It's the feeling of doing all the right things, but nothing feels right. And so this young clergyman in 1738, wandering around the streets of London, he reluctantly walked into a room on Aldersgate Street. And there was a miracle, there was a a meeting happening, and in that meeting it became a miracle of miracles. Everything changed for him. His name was John Wesley. And without what happened to him that night, there's a better than good chance that none of us would be here in this room doing what we're doing right now. And we know about the miracle of miracles he experienced because Wesley wrote about it in his journal that very night. He said that he walked into this space, this this gathering of Christians, and someone was reading from Martin Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. Not reading from Romans, but reading from Martin Luther's introduction to the letter to the Romans. And then later, this is what Wesley wrote. I think we have a quote of it that we can pull up. This is what he wrote in his journal, word for word. While he, the man reading from the book, was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, an assurance was given me that God had taken away my sins, even mine, had saved me from the law of sin and death. It's John Wesley's heart strangely warmed experience. In that moment, he went from believing that salvation was up to him alone to realizing that salvation comes by through and from Christ alone. It's the difference that makes all the difference of the world, the strangely warmed experience. Now, I I love this expression. I love the notion that his heart was strangely warmed. I host a podcast every week that's called Strangely Warmed for this very reason. The notion of a strangely warmed heart has become so uh, indicative in our culture that we now have an emoji for a heart strangely warmed. I think we also have a picture of this. Truly, on your phones, if you're typing a message to someone and you write heartburn, this is what comes up. I like to think it's John Wesley's strangely warmed heart, but sometimes when you have a little too much barbecue, this is what happens too. The heart strangely warmed experience. For Wesley, this was the spark that ignited the movement we call Methodism. Without what happened that night, truly, we wouldn't be here doing what we're doing right now. It made all the difference in the world. 
This is how Luther's preface starts, what, what Wesley heard that night. This is how it begins. Romans really is the chief part of the New Testament. It is the very purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word, by heart, but should occupy themselves with it every single day as if it were the daily bread for their souls. Romans can never be read or pondered too much. The more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. Those are the words that Wesley heard. Some of the words that eventually strangely warmed his heart. Why is Romans so special? What is it about this letter that it holds the power to strangely warm the hearts of those who receive it? Paul has an answer at the very beginning of the letter. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. To the Jew first and then to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. Faith, what a churchy word. We throw it around all the time, faith. What is faith? Well, faith is not a competition. It's not an art. It's not an achievement. It's not a good work which some of us can boast of having. It's, it's not something we do. We can't create faith in ourselves. Faith is a gift. Faith is something we receive. Faith takes time. Faith is trusting that God will do for us that which we cannot do for ourselves. To use Wesley's words, faith is trusting Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. And for Paul, Abraham is the center of faith. I don't know if you are aware, but there has been a debate in the church recently, a disagreement about inclusion and exclusion. Who is in and who is out? Who is good and who is not? And this debate that the church is having is, frankly, nothing new. It's something we've struggled with since the very beginning of the church. During the time of Paul, the friction about inclusion and exclusion was about who were the real descendants of Abraham. That's what he's writing about in this letter. Were the descendants only according to the flesh, therefore only Jews could be descendants of Abraham, kicking Gentiles out? Or was it possible to be a descendant according to some other marker or signifier? Who is included and who's excluded? Who has a place in the church and who doesn't? It's a question we've apparently had since the very beginning. However, I'll note, it's a bit strange that there seems to be a growing consensus among church today that if you want to be a church today, you have to be welcoming of all people, no matter what. Whether it's on your church marquee, a newsletter, postcard, whatever, churches want everyone to know that everyone can come. So we start to describe ourselves. We're an open congregation. We're a friendly congregation. We're an inclusive congregation. These are all ecclesial buzzwords. Go look at any church website and you will find a version of every one of these words. The only problem with all of those descriptions of the church is that I am sure, deep in the marrow of my own soul, that every person in this room knows of at least one person who has felt the complete opposite in church. That they have not felt included at all, they felt excluded. And if we don't know somebody who's experienced it, pro we probably ourselves have experienced it at some point. And we might think it's for the big ticket reasons that the church has been fighting about over the last few years, but usually we feel excluded for weird and strange and petty things like what college we went to or what songs we like to listen to or what we even wear to church on a Sunday morning. So here's something that the church doesn't want to confess, but it must. 
It is not possible for a church to be inclusive of every single person. No matter how hard we try, no matter what we do, someone is always going to feel like an outsider when they're inside a church. I have a friend who serves a church, and they have a big, big sign right on the front wall of the church that everyone has to go under when they come in, and it says, hate has no place here. I love that. I think it's a worthy goal. But what that says is, we love everyone as long as you don't hate anyone. The problem is we all hate somebody. I'll be first to confess. You know who I hate? I hate fans of the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> I've tried. I've repented. I've asked for the Lord to make a new way. Something's wrong. I can't do it. Can't do it. I've tried. Hate has no place here. You know what that means? No one's welcome. Nobody. It's not possible for a church to be inclusive of every single person. Someone is always going to feel like an outsider when they're inside a church. Now, why is that the case? The answer is us. The answer is sin. Our judgments, our preconceived notions, our general dispositions will make it such that we can't unconditionally accept everyone who comes to the door because you never know who's going to come through the door. We can certainly strive for it. We absolutely should strive for it, but we're not fully capable of it. There is only one person in the history of the cosmos who has been able to receive everyone unconditionally, and it was Jesus. And the only reason Jesus could do it was because he was God. Which brings us back to Abraham and to Paul. Abraham has been used throughout the history of the church as this example of righteousness, this example of what we're all supposed to be like, the model for the rest of us. Which is why, during the time of Romans, they want to know who are the real descendants? Who's in and who's out? Abraham is the one who responds to God's call. He's the one with whom God sealed the covenant. The one who becomes the father of many nations. So when we talk about Abraham in the church today, we tend to emphasize his radical willingness to travel into an unknown land, his perseverance, his patience. But the funny thing is, that's not the way the Bible talks about it. In Genesis 12, it says that the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, your father's house to a land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name so great that you will be a blessing, and you will be, by you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's the call of Abraham but it's more about God than it's about Abraham. It's more of a promise than it is a call. And the promise God makes, it's unconditional. There are no ifs in it. God doesn't say, Abraham, here's the deal. If you stay faithful in your marriage, I will bless you. God doesn't say, if you go to church every single Sunday and you make sure to put 10% in the offering plate when it comes by, I will bless you. God doesn't say any of that. He just says, I will bless you, period, full stop. At no point in the biblical witness does Abraham do anything to earn this honor that's bestowed upon him by God. Paul says that he has no grounds for boasting whatsoever. In fact, the only thing that Abraham really does is trust God. Abraham's righteousness comes not because of what he does, but because he trusts God to do what God says God will do. The biblical word of importance for us is reckon. Paul reminds the church in Rome that God reckoned Abraham as righteous. Now, I love that word. I don't know how many of us use that word on a regular basis. Reckon. I mean, we are in the South enough that there are probably some people here who use that word occasionally. When we use it, we say, you think it's going to rain? 
I reckon so. You think the commanders are finally going to put a team together to win the Super Bowl? I reckon they might this year. Talk about real faith. But Paul doesn't use the word reckon that way. To reckon something is to add something. You, you reckon a ledger, like in a bank. You have to add something to make it right. We, perhaps when we hear the word a reckoning, that someone's going to come and make something happen, that's the way the word is used by Paul. Paul says that Abraham was righteous not because he was faithful, not because he was good, not because he was obedient or godly, but because God reckoned him righteous. Righteousness comes to Abraham as a gift. We call it grace. Abraham, far from being the model of all that we should strive to be, is the first justified sinner, the original ungodly person who is remolded by God in godliness, not because of his deeds and actions, but because God delights in impossible things. God is in the business of redeeming, remaking, justifying, rectifying the least acceptable, most ungodly people you can imagine. People like us. Go read Genesis sometime. Start with chapter 12. Check out all the wild, ungodly things Abraham gets up to. It is truly shocking behavior. Even more shocking is the fact that God chooses him to be the father of many nations, which is why he is so essential to everything Paul says in this letter. He's addressing the concern, who is in, who is out. He says, you see, the promise of salvation, it rests on grace, is guaranteed to all of Abraham's descendants, whether they follow the law or not, because if salvation came only through following all the right rules, doing all of the right things, then nobody gets in. Not you, not me, not even Abraham, not even John Wesley. Paul says that the law brings wrath, but the gospel sets us free. Doing all the right things, knowing all the right people, making all the right choices, it sounds wonderful in principle. The only problem is we don't do it. We don't do it. We leave undone things we should have done, and we do things we ought not to have done. Did you hear Janice's prayer? It's true of every single one of us. We can't make ourselves righteous. We can't rectify ourselves. We can't redeem ourselves. We can't even be the all-inclusive church we want to be because we're in it, sinners that we are. The only one who can do any of this is God and only God. And thankfully, God is completely caught up in the work of doing things that we would never do ourselves because God gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist which is another way of saying that, oddly enough, the church is already the most inclusive place in the world. You know why? Because it's full of forgiven sinners. We're not a bunch of good people getting better all the time. We're a bunch of broken people who make mistakes constantly. We just have the good fortune of friends and a community that says we can keep coming back. We can be welcome when we are broken because we are broken. God loves broken people. You know why? Because everyone's broken. God is in the business of remembering us, putting us back together. God continues to hand over the good news through letters and songs and preachers and pulpits until our hearts are strangely warmed and we know deep in the marrow of our souls that Christ has taken away our sins, even ours, and has saved us from the law of sin and death. 
It's through our faith in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist that we are reckoned righteous. It's trusting that God can do what God says God will do. The gospel is a promise. It's a promise that John Wesley heard so long ago, the promise that ignited his heart, that set him aflame to proclaim the truly good news for a world that was drowning in bad news. It's the same promise that Abraham heard in the wilderness that set him on a course to being a father of people who would bless the world. The gospel is a promise that you find in the empty tomb on Easter that delivers us into God's strange new world. The gospel is a promise. So who's in? Who's out? Who's included? Who's excluded? Who gets to be a descendant of Abraham? You know, there's a song that answers the question. We were singing it not that long ago. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Amen.